Welcome back to the Send 938 Missions Podcast, a ministry of Baptist Missions designed to encourage, equip, and inspire the next generation of missionary servants and the churches who will send them. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, Administrator for North American, Asian, and South Pacific Ministries here at Baptist Missions, joined today by a friend of the mission and uh, someone well-known to much of our listening audience, Dr. Kevin Bowder. Dr. Bowder, it's good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Dr. Bowder is serving as the research professor at uh, Central Theological Seminary up in Plymouth, Minnesota. And uh, a topic for us today is, uh, of course, uh, right inside of his wheelhouse as a co-author for One in Hope and Doctrine, a discourse on the history of fundamentalism published. Uh, how many years ago was that published, Dr. Bowder? Oh, probably 10 years ago, maybe about a little more. About a decade ago um, with uh, Dr. Robert Delnay as the co-author by uh, Regular Baptist Press. And I was mentioning before we began recording here that Dr. Delnay was uh, the the uh, professor who taught my history of fundamentalism class in uh, undergrad. So uh, it's good to have you on today. The topic that's in front of us, uh, as you will have noticed by the the episode title, if you're listening, uh, is the future of fundamentalism. And I really want to explore this uh, with you today, uh, but to really have an understanding of where the future of fundamentalism uh, will be or where it's headed, I think we need to just recap a little bit of its history. And so uh, can we begin with just a, a short history of 20th century fundamentalism? Is that possible to do a short history of this? Uh, I could do a long history if you want. I know you could. <laughs> I'll try to be short. Yeah, fundamentalism actually begins in 1919, 1920. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the movement gets its first organization in 1919 with uh, W.B. Riley's World's Christian Fundamentals Association, which ironically was held almost overlapping the Northern Baptist Convention that year. And one of the unforeseen consequences was that Riley pulled most of the conservatives out of the convention meeting, which meant that the convention took a severe leftward lurch in its policies in 1919. That's what's re- that's what resulted in a move to try to recapture control of the convention and get rid of the liberals beginning in 1920. Uh, originally under the uh, leadership of J.C. Massey, uh, it became the Fundamentalist Fellowship, and it was Curtis Lee Laws in July of 1920 who gave that fellowship its name. So that's that's where fundamentalism comes to, from. Fundamentalism is not strictly a, a Baptist movement, is it? Uh, not at all. In fact, the, the year earlier, the World's Christian Fundamentals Association, which Riley organized, was very uh, non-denominational, interdenominational. I remember uh, in the, the the master's program that I was in, and with an emphasis in historical theologies, I remember reading some of the materials from the early meetings of fundamentalist groups in the nineteen would be nineteen nineteen to like nineteen twenty one, and some of the some of the um, roles of who was in attendance, I thought were very interesting. As I read through, I saw I saw Baptist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, and and so on and so forth. So. How does how does a um, a fundamentalism as we either as we know it or as we think we know it today, uh, which is to some degree or another highlighted by its separatism uh, in many arenas, how does it come out of a movement that was so broadly, and I don't use this in a, in a demeaning term, but broadly ecumenically minded in those days? Yeah, I, I, maybe the term you'd want to use is a genuinely Catholic movement in in the sense small of small C Catholic. Movement. Small C Catholic that reaches across uh, Christian denominations. Uh, f- fundamentalism has never been about separating um, at at the base level from other Christians. It's been about separating from people who denied the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, now there there is, and what develops later on after say the mid nineteen forties, there there is a kind of separation 
that takes place among believers as well. Um, and, and that's always been the case. But fundamentalism, fundamentalism is primarily about the question, um, with whom may we have fellowship at all? And the answer to that question is, Christian fellowship is predicated on the gospel. You cannot extend Christian fellowship to people who deny the gospel. And the fundamental doctrines are doctrines that are essential to the gospel. So you deny a fundamental, you're denying a gospel, or you're denying the gospel. Um, you, you, can, you can be a Baptist, a Methodist, a, a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, and still affirm the gospel. Right. And uh, you, know, I, you and I, I think, would recognize there is a sphere of legitimate Christian fellowship with people in all of those groups, if, if they're not, you know, if they haven't gone liberal, if they're genuinely preaching and teaching the gospel. Sure. Sure. And this, of course, is of, of some relevance for a, a podcast from BMM because Baptism and Missions has historically uh, and would still today operate within the realm of uh, a fundamentalist position. So uh, our association of church, churches that we are would consider, I guess, our constituency, um, the schools that we have historically been associated with, connected with, um, uh, recruiting from, uh, our institutions that are and have been uh, historically very, very uh, content to identify as a fundamentalist school, a fundamentalist organization, fundamentalist churches, uh, and what we're looking at today. It, and I don't. I know this isn't a problem just for today, because um, in fact, in the in the class that um, that uh, Dr. Del Ney taught, and this would have been almost two decades ago that I was in, I remember distinctly having conversations in class among students with him about whether or not there was still a necessary or appropriate use of the term fundamental or fundamentalist. Um, in light of what that term evokes today in people's understandings, and I, and I might say misunderstandings. So uh, using the term and assuming the term here, what are the fundamentals of the faith? Those things that you said are, are central to faithful Christian gospel um, articulation. What are the things that have historically been understood to be the fundamentals of the faith? Well, nobody's ever been able to draft an exhaustive list of them. Um, and anybody who pretends they have simply doesn't know what they're talking about. Uh, there, there are certain fundamentals that, that have been obvious, but they have become obvious as doctrines have been challenged over the course of church history. The first big challenges involve the relationship of Christ to the Father. And, and so what comes out of that is Trinitarianism, the, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, uh, the, the, the relationship of Christ to the Father. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. The, these, these have been recognized as fundamentals from very, very early on. And Later when you on, say early on, you're talking about kind of uh, early, like, creedal Christianity? Yeah, in, in fact, the very earliest creeds and before the creeds, the uh, rule of faith, various articulations of the rule of faith, were all about these most important fundamentals, because those were the things that were being challenged in that day. The next thing that gets challenged is the relationship of the divine and human within Christ. So you, you get more definition that takes place at that point. And we come to realize, we editorially here, we, you and I weren't alive at that time, Sure, but Christians came to realize that certain teachings where there had been a certain amount of leeway uh, as as people articulated them unreflectively, now we began to realize we have to be precise about these things because these teachings really matter. If Jesus is not God, he could not save us. If Jesus is not human, he could not save us. And various attempts to com combine Jesus' deity with his humanity just didn't work. And so we 
had to get more specific about those things. So in the fundamentalist modernist debates that uh, you referred to as beginning really in 1919, uh, and of course the the foundation for that was being laid in the late 1800s um, in yeah, the, the publishing houses. Yeah, the debates were going on for 50 years before that. Yeah, so what were the things that were at the level of debate, public debate, uh, that provoked the separate movements of the modernist and fundamentalists in the early 20th century? For, for example, human nature was was being debated. Were humans really sinners? And, and if so, then to what extent did their sin really require condemnation? Which, of course, reflects on the character of God. Is, is God predominantly a God of justice? Is God predominantly a God of love who can just overlook wrongs? Um, the, the, the nature of the kingdom came into question. Is, is the kingdom something we're expecting eschatologically? Or is the kingdom God's rule on earth right now? Should we be expecting things to get better and better? And, and does that mean that the gospel is really a mechanism for social improvement? Mm. Um, the, the, the whole question of who Christ is. It was very common to hear liberals say something like, Jesus was the first Christian and he is an example of faith, which sounds pious. But the fact is, Jesus was not the first Christian. He was the Christ. He was not, he was an example of faith, but that's not all he is. He he is an object. He is the object of faith. Uh, and those are the things that were being denied at that time. Doctrine of Scripture. How do we know any of this? Um, liberal and modernistic theologians denied the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, whereas conservatives, uh, and particularly fundamentalists, upheld the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Mm. So... If fundamentalism is is really modern fundamentalism is a movement in defense of core or the the base tenets of the Christian faith, where did the kind of of militant separatistic you know fighting fundamentalism come from? You mentioned earlier something about around the 1940s. There was kind of a shift in thinking about some of this. So where did it come from? And and I guess can there be a faithful fundamentalism without the separatism that modern modern fundamentalism is so, I'm going to say well-known for, but in some circles so poorly known for, uh, meaning it, it it's really looked looked upon as an undesirable quality. Um, so where did it come from, and, and and can it exist apart from it today? Well, let's, let's back up a moment. There never has been a fundamentalism that wasn't a fighting fundamentalism. Okay. When, when Curtis Lee Laws coined the name in 1920, he, he said, and this, this may not be an, be an exact quote, but I'm going to get as close to it as I can remember it. Um, he, he said, we suggest that those who still cling to the fundamentals and who mean to do battle royal for the fundamentals shall be called fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. And that had a specific meaning in his context. The Northern Baptists had realized that the convention was under the control of people who denied the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they said that they meant to do battle royal for the fundamentals, what that meant was they intended to take the convention back and to put the gospel deniers outside the convention. The problem is that gospel deniers almost never want to go peacefully. Right. But when you attempt to practice put out separation, what you inevitably end up with is a war. You end up with a battle. And, and laws recognize that. He knew they were going to have to do battle royal. In the long run, they lost that battle in the Northern Baptist Convention. And that's what led to, for example, the founding in 1932 of the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. In 19, 
42 of the Conservative Baptist Foreign Mission Society in 1947 of the Conservative Baptist Association. Those, those were groups that were recognizing for one reason or another that they no longer had a home uh, in the Northern Baptist Convention. They needed something outside of the convention. So put out separation turned into come out separation. Mm. So what is it, do you think, about, um, and I'm going to say modern sensitivities, meaning you know, 20th century forward since we're in that era, what do you think it is about modern sensitivities within Christianity broadly that so desperately wants to avoid a fight? Well, not everybody wants to avoid a, fly, a, a fight. I, I mean, Doug Wilson's got a flamethrower. Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting you would say that because I have a, a podcast scheduled, uh, recording scheduled for later this afternoon with um, with Doug Brown on the, the rise of post-millennialism. And uh, we plan on spending just a few minutes talking about uh, uh, what's going on in Moscow. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. So our listening audience will be looking for that in a week or two. Um, (laughs) (laughs) there is, there is a certain kind of person who loves a good scrap. There's a, you know, think of those as your sharks. On the other hand, some of us are turtles. We, we hate scrapping at all. Um, and, and honestly, fundamentalism has included both kinds, but over time, the sharks tend to run off the turtles. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking just in terms of more broadly speaking, the evangelicalism that looks at fundamentalism and says, why do you guys want to fight about all this stuff? What? Why do you why do you why do you have to be so particular? And I, I know that there have been, you know, historic kind of reconstructionist movements that have produced some really errant theology and and denominations or or cults. I, I would probably add to that list uh, in America that have said, well, you know, we want to get back to the kind of understanding that that we think Paul expressed when he says, I just want to know Christ and him crucified. And that's it. You know, I'm, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Everything else is entirely secondary. If you know and love Christ, then I can know and love Christ with you. Um, where does that do you think that that and, and yet this is the same Paul who writes Galatians? <laughs> no, that's why. And, and that's why I said they think that what he said. Yeah, yeah. would go ahead and cut it all off. Yeah, I, I, you know, he's he's not even being gentle at that point. He's he's being very in your face. Yeah. Uh, but at that point, it's about really serious matters. It's it's about gospel level matters. Um, so he's he's willing to go to the mat for that. Yeah, there, you know, he's he's willing to withstand Peter to the face, even though Peter is an apostle. Uh, because Peter is to be blamed on a gospel-level matter. But when it comes to lesser matters, Paul takes a less stringent stand, even when he takes a stand. So recognizing that already we've highlighted, you've highlighted very well, that over the course of the centuries, the issues which are regarded as fundamental have developed and changed. Things have been settled to the degree that, broadly speaking, there's wide consensus. And then we move on to more more careful, um, narrow articulation of ideas related to that truth. And it, so we, it's kind of a boiling down type of relationship with the next issue that will be faced. Well, um, you, you've, you've actually got more than one thing going on at the same time. One is that we continue to discover new fundamentals. Okay. For example, in the 90s, a new theology came along, open theism, which told us that God does not possess exhaustive divine foreknowledge. Our first reaction was to take a step back and to say, what do we do with this? But the more we thought about it, the the more we, and by we, I mean conservative gospel-believing Christians, came to the conclusion that the denial of exhaustive divine foreknowledge is really an attack upon the gospel itself. This is a top-level doctrine. We can't trifle with this one. Yeah. So, so there, we are still learning new fundamentals. So it's both um, a boiling down and a presentation of new errant doctrine that causes us to articulate a confidence in the fundamental that 
that that denies or, or denounces or contradicts that errant doctrine? Is that what you're saying? That, that's part of what's going on. The other side of what's going on is that there are doctrines that aren't fundamentals, but that still make a difference to some levels of Christian fellowship. Not all Christian fellowship is the same thing. You, you look in the New Testament, you've, you've got many levels and varieties of relationships between Christian individuals, between Christian churches, individuals to churches, uh, individuals to what I'm going to call parachurch organization. Uh, you do find parachurch organization in the New Testament. Uh, and, and each different level of fellowship carries with it a different level of requirement. To, to, to cite an obvious example, you have to meet higher qualifications to be a church leader, a pastor, bishop, elder, mm-hmm. than you have to meet to be a church member. Mm-hmm. You have to you, you you must have a more exact and exhaustive understanding of the faith, and less deviation is permitted at the level of church leadership. Okay. And of course, going on from church membership, there are all sorts of different levels of fellowship that require greater or lesser degrees of agreement. Years, years ago, David Nettleton, who at the time I believe was president of Faith Baptist Bible College, wrote a little pamphlet entitled A Limited Message or a Limited Fellowship. And his point in that publication was that when Christians disagree about some aspect of the faith, they have exactly two options. One is, in the interest of working together, they can agree to limit their message. That is to say, we, we just won't make a big deal out of this thing. We just won't talk about it. But if one or the other of them feels he has to make a big deal out of it, then the only other option is to limit your fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example of this is denominationalism. People think denominationalism is an evil. Actually, denomination, de- denominationalism is the best way of making sense out of what would otherwise be a very evil situation. I have often said that the, the benefit of denominationalism is that when you, when you say, I am a X, Y, or Z, to the informed, it immediately communicates where you are and what you believe. I mean, if you, if you say it to someone who has no uh, you know, awareness, affinity, or affiliation with, with church life, saying that I am a, you know, an independent fundamental Baptist, uh, that means nothing. Saying I'm a Lutheran d- doesn't communicate much. But to the person who, is, who is, is familiar with these things, the titles, the labels actually mean something. And that's, that's actually one of the things I was wanting to, hoping to address with you today, and I'm not sure I put it on the guide sheet, but just the, the question of what is the value or the benefit of bearing a, a name like fundamentalist? Um, is it something that you think should be um, advertised, uh, advanced, it should be the kind of the foremost identity? Um, or is it something that when you get into the weeds with somebody, you can say, well, you know, actually I'm a fundamentalist, so this is what, it, this is what I believe about these things. Where, where is that level of affinity for the name fundamentalism as opposed to a defense of and articulation of the fundamentals? Yeah, well, we, we've got to have labels. Uh, if we didn't have them, we would be forced to invent them. Um, <laughs> you can't walk through a grocery store and just start pulling cans off the shelf. You, you've got to look at the label on the can or you don't know what you're getting. In the same way, when it comes to different varieties of Christianity, and I'm, I'm talking just genuine Christianity here, gospel-believing Christianity, yeah. um, there, there are different varieties, and you have to be able to say what particular variety it is that you're looking at. That's what labels allow us to do. Now, the problem is that labels get debased. Um, and and this, this is true, whatever label we're, we're going to use. You know, if I use the label dispensationalist, 
there are some dispensationalists out there. I don't want to be particularly identified with. Right. And they tend to be the, the kind of the cream that rises to the top of the those outside of dispensationalism. That's what they see. That's what they know. That's what they identify with. And and I know yeah, well, as a, look, a fundamentalist me, and as me, a dispensationalist, I know that it's often kind of frustrating to try and talk with someone who presumes my positions based on what they know of the worst of those who identify with those positions. I, I don't think sometimes it's so much the cream that rises to the, the top. I think it's the scum that rises to the top. Okay, better. <laughs> That's a better picture, maybe. Uh, and, uh, either way, it's the most visible part. It, it becomes visible and it repels people. Yeah. Uh, it, that, that's true of the name Baptist. Yes. Uh, it, for that, it's true of the name Christian. Yes. You know, if I just say I'm a Christian, there's plenty of baggage that goes along with that. And here we're dealing with an actual biblical label. Uh, so in the long run, we can't get away from labels. You mean uh, in terms of Christian, you're, you're dealing with a biblical label? Yeah. Okay. Christian is a biblical yeah. label. Um, you know, we might not like the baggage that comes with the labels, but somehow we, we've, we've got to be able to live in a way that rises above the baggage. It's, it's always possible to trade in one label for another. When it comes to the label fundamentalist, I know we've been having this discussion for, well, since the early 60s mm-hmm. at any rate. Um, and the problem is that although a whole bunch of us aren't happy with the connotations that come with the name fundamentalist, Nobody has ever prov- provided a better suggestion for a label. Um, I, I tongue-in-cheek suggested maybe we could use the label paleo-evangelical. As far <laughs> as I know, only only one person ever tried to do that. <laughs> it didn't work well for him. Well, you're bringing up a, an, an interesting point here, and I know you're in a seminary environment, so you're dealing with, you, you know, every four years you're dealing with a, a new crop of of students who are coming in with some of some of the same sensitivities, some of the same concerns, and and some new ones, and. And yet you're saying, you know, for for 60 years now, we've been dealing with this question of why are we, you know, why are we holding on to a name that does, in fact, even in the even in the more modern era than it did probably in 1960, have so much baggage associated with it? Because broadly speaking, outside of the realm of Christianity, there's there's an entire world that knows fundamentalism as an association with with a sect of terrorism. So, you know, the post 9-11 world, fundamentalism means something very different to to lots of people. Um and and within the church, there are those who hear the word fundamentalist and and think, oh, you're going to tell me how I should dress and what Bible I should read from. Um, so you said, uh, and I you can correct me if I'm wrong or mis- misheard you here. You said something about you know we 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 carry this and it has some baggage, but what else are we going to do with it? So I guess the question is, is there a way to deliver the kind of confidence that we have about the fundamentals of the faith to the next generation and not? deliver so much baggage is is there something that can be done or is this just an awareness that every generation we're going to have to work hard to define and defend who we are both from opponents of of biblical theology as well as those who would mislabel us with as you said the scum that rises to the top (laughs) well again all we can do is to try to live well number one we live above the caricatures we try not to be the things that people think are bad. Yeah. Number two, we talk about what we mean by that term. And certainly when, when we're talking to people who are looking to us for leadership, we explain in detail what that term means. Mm. Um, I think there are times when maybe we don't lead with that term. If, if I'm just introducing myself to the world in general, I, I don't begin by saying, hi, I'm Kevin and I'm a fundamentalist. Right. Okay. Um, so, if you're if you're assessing your 
fundamentalist position based on on what you believe and kind of the the tradition of defense of gospel oriented issues um, for centuries. You're in that in that vein. What is the next generation's um, fundamentalist debates? What are the theological issues that will be represented there I, I as you see them coming? So, I wouldn't say so much that the issues have changed as that the issues have multiplied. The, the deity of Christ, for example, is still an issue. Still an issue. Okay. Yeah, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is still an issue. None of the old issues have gone away. People have an amazing capacity to, to revive or reinvent heresies. And they, they just they cycle around all the time. But we're bumping up against other stuff that, that you know we've just never seen before. Um the 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 whole problem the, the set of problems posed by critical theory, um and by, by which I don't just mean critical race theory, but including right. critical race theory. Right. The, whole, the whole set of problems posed by critical theory, Frankfurt School and all of that. Uh set of problems posed by what we loosely call wokeness. I, th- I think really do at the end of the day challenge the gospel. Um, they they are major issues. They are redefining our doctrine of humanity. They are redefining our doctrine of sin. And when you redefine humanity, when you redefine sin, you have to end up redefining Christ. You have to redefine redemption. Um, there there is it, it sends a shockwave through the entire system of faith. Um, so I think this is probably going to be one of the next things that we need to deal with. Well. There, there is a rising concern that I have and I see from others about deconstructionism. And I, I think that's what you're alluding to or maybe referring to here with this idea that, that a, a generation of professing believers is having to examine the ideologies and systems that the world is presenting them. And in response, their question is not, is this appropriate? Their question is, is what I've learned about the Bible and Christianity, really what the Bible teaches about the Christian faith. And so they're walking through this deconstructive process, uh, and many, many are arriving at the end of that saying, everything I was taught was wrong. And these ideologies, wokeism, critical theory, um, victim mentalities, uh, uh, you know, these these uh, racist structures that are built into the world system that I live in, all of these things uh, undermine my faith to the degree that I'm no no longer willing to profess that I am in fact a Christian, uh, or they arrive at a very liberal sense of Christianity that says um, the the most important thing about the Christian faith is understanding that Jesus loves everyone uh, indiscriminately and without expectation, and that's the kind of love I want to show, and that of course lends itself to things like the He Gets Us ads that we see on TV these days. Um, so it is a concern for me as I see that because I've got I've got two kids that are part of Gen Z. I'm watching what's happening in the world and I'm wondering for myself, what are they going to face and how will they respond? So what's the remedy for this? What's, what's the, what's the approach that could be taken from the local church level to the, to the family level, to uh, the institutional level, like, you know, a place like central seminary, what, what can be done to remedy and rectify um, the damage that's being done here? Well, at the seminary level, to, to answer your question in reverse, at the seminary level, we're being forced to teach in response to some of these trends. Okay. Um, you know, we are having to help our students work their way through this stuff. Uh, at the pastoral level, pastors need to be aware of what's going on, and they need to be aware of the processes of thought that have resulted in these trends. What deconstructionists said is we can take apart this system. Uh, if if language is a closed system, then it's really not not about what's being said. It's about 
the the assertion of power behind what's being said. And that, of course, is what leads into critical theory. But the, the idea that you can take somebody apart, expose their true motivations, which invariably are power motivations, that, that reality can be divided into oppressors and oppressed, uh, oppressors and victims. Um, when, when somebody says they're being deconstructed, what, what they mean is, my beliefs have been challenged. I haven't been able to defend them. I haven't met anybody who can. And so I'm throwing them over and buying into another system of thought. Got it. Which isn't deconstruction proper, but it is the result of something that went on in in what I'll call the intermediate past. It went on 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So so how can this be uh, navigated at the familial and ecclesial, ecclesiastical level? Excuse me. I'm, I'm going to answer that question in two ways. The, the lesser answer is that because a pastor is a shepherd, he has to know what threatens his flock. Yeah. Pastors need to know something about the intellectual trends in the world's, world around us. To do that, they need to find ways to keep current. And that, that's going to mean reading more than your newspaper and your commentaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ha- having said that, that's the lesser answer. I think the greater answer is that fundamentally the duty of all pastor, bishop, elders, is to proclaim the word of God. Um, By proclaiming it, I don't mean top-down, I'm the expert, you listen to me. What I mean is, look, let me show you what the text says, and let me help you understand how this all fits together. If if I understand Scripture correctly, if if indeed the Word of God is living and powerful, uh, if indeed all Scripture has been breathed out by God, uh, and and has the power to reprove and rebuke, uh, has the power to reshape our thinking and to train us as children in the faith. If the Word has that power, then what we need to do is to unleash the Word on our congregations. We, we need, it's great to be experts in trends, but Christian leaders, more than anything else, need to be experts in the Word, and they need to lead the people under their care to understand the Word of God rightly. And that would extend from the church to the family who is sitting underneath the teaching of the Word? And and fathers, I think, have a special responsibility there. Fathers are the ones who are supposed to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Word. So they keep on doing that. And, and they do it not as authoritarian figures, but as figures who authority, whose authority rests in the Word itself. Uh, but even more than that, it's showing my children, showing my wife, if I'm a pastor, showing my congregation how the Word of God is changing me. And yes, the, the, we, we get new questions all the time, uh, but I think it's worth remembering that human nature, and there is such a thing as human nature, contra wokeness, human nature doesn't change, therefore basic human needs don't change. The new questions are always of trying to skirt the permanent questions. And the permanent questions always come back to the same thing. Who am I? Why am I here? How do I know who I am? How do I know what my purpose is? And ultimately, who is God? And why should he care about me? Mm-hmm. Those are really basic questions. Yeah. And they're, they're at the heart of, of most of the you say the questions that are being raised, most of the issues that the church faces generationally, um, they're, we're facing issues that are a response to attempts to either avoid those questions or answer them much differently than what Scripture would permit us to answer them. 
That's good. Now, I'll, I'll tell you what I think is the very worst thing that we can do. The worst thing that we can do, we, we have a culture that for over 100 years has been shaped by a rampantly secular, popular culture. And the popular culture has visibly decayed year after year after year for the last century or more. The very worst thing we can do is to say that in order to be effective, our, our churches have to begin to ape this visibly decadent, secular, popular culture. To, to do that is effectively to say to the entire world, a, a church that has to be that feels that it has to be contemporary is essentially confessing that it has nothing permanent to say. Mm. To follow the latest cultural trends is effectively to say, I don't have any answers to the culture, to, to, to the questions, so I am accepting the answers that are being provided by the surrounding culture. Anything you have to do to draw people in, in the sense of amusing them, to get them to hear the gospel, I think works counterproductively to the gospel itself. I think it's exactly the kind of thing that Paul was disavowing in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Hmm. He wasn't willing to play games to get a hearing for the gospel. He, he wasn't willing to concede anything either to Jews or to Greeks. The gospel was the gospel. That's good. And, and he didn't feel obligated to bring people in to hear the gospel. He went out and found them and soaked them in the gospel Yeah. until he got put in jail. And then, lo and behold, they started chaining Roman soldiers to him, and he had a captive audience. So he writes to the Philippians, and he says, all, all these guys from the Praetorium, they're getting saved. How did they get saved? Well, they were chained to him. They had no choice but to listen to him. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, in light of that, that good and wise counsel, let me ask uh, maybe a question to wrap things up here for us today. Do you see uh, a future for fundamentalism, assuming that there isn't a better name to be found, uh, paleo what did you what did you say? Paleo Paleo evangelical. I see very little future for paleo very little future for paleo evangelical. Assuming that's the case, then do you do you see that this label continues as a recognized movement or camp? And and if so, what does it look like? What will it fe- what's what will its features be? Well, there never has been such a thing as a single fundamentalist movement. There have always been shades, gradations, variations, and and that's right because nobody nobody ever has simply been a fundamentalist. We're always a fundamentalist and something else. I'm a fundamentalist and a Baptist and a dispensationalist uh, and a cessationist. And you, you can go right down the list there. Yeah. Um, and, and those other things exert a very powerful influence in the shape that my fundamentalism takes. And other people who have different commitments in some of those areas are going to end up with varieties of fundamentalism that look very different from mine. And that's okay. Um we don't necessarily have to work together as a cohesive movement. I think what we look for is a community of ideas. And the greater the community of ideas with a given person or institution, the more closely I'm going to be able to work with that person or institution. Um, Whether the name survives, I don't know. Whether a movement survives, we don't have a movement now. Uh, but, But if the idea can survive, And if the idea can continue to be implemented reasonably faithfully generation after generation, I think that's all that the Lord expects of us. I don't know that we're responsible to build movements. I I think we are responsible faithfully to implement biblical ideas. Within whatever sphere of 
influence we have. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor. I implement it within my congregation. I'm a professor. I implement it within my, my classroom. You're a missions administrator. You implement it within your mission. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of control over what takes place outside of our own little orbit. So we do the best we can to be faithful within our orbit. And every now and then, somebody like you and somebody like me will bump in together and say, hey, we can kind of work together on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Dr. Bowder, I appreciate so much your uh, sharing with us as you have today. The insights that you've provided have been uh, helpful to me. I trust they've been helpful to the rest of our listening audience. If you would like to respond to what you've heard today with a question or comment, you can always reach us at send938 at bmm.org. And uh, whatever streaming platform you're listening on today, make sure to subscribe if you're able and leave us a five-star rating and review to help others find this, the Send 938 Missions Podcast. And we'll meet you back here next Wednesday.